If you keep pursuing this, you will eventually arrive at your destination, which is that you will find that route where you fall off and get hurt or killed. You will find it eventually if you keep looking for it, so to speak. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Now I'm coming at you today with some top shelf off-season content here with the one and only Chris Kaluse. Chris has been, of course, the voice of climbing for over a decade now, bringing more than 250 episodes of the Enormal Cast to our ears and our hearts as we drive to the crag, run laps in the gyms, or in my case, most often fold laundry while the kids are sleeping. His voice, his wit, his stoke are instantly identifiable, and if you've been a climber for more than a few days, you have surely enjoyed your fair share of the Enormal Cast. Now, as a climber, Chris is the real deal, y'all. He's embarked on epic trips the world over, put up impressive first ascents, and tackled climbs so sketchy, my palms were sweating just talking with him about him in this interview here today. He is a climber to the core with a dirtbag's heart and a punk rock aversion to authority and regulation. He's also a dad, a musician, and a guy who's just trying to keep the stoke as he enters new chapters in his climbing life, which for me is something that I can really relate to. I think you all will as well. I enjoyed the hell out of this conversation. I think I think I honestly cut out like 20 minutes of us laughing, like just like 20 minutes of cackling. We had so much fun. Chris is such a genuine guy. I really, really think you're going to enjoy this chat. Big, 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 big news, y'all. The Struggle is now on YouTube with exclusive episodes and incredible climbing footage. I'm so psyched. From Alex Honnold to Alex Magos to Alex Johnson and also other amazing athletes whose names aren't Alex. I am talking about Hazel Finlay, Lynn Hill, Jonathan Segrist, so many more. They are all hitting the Struggle YouTube channel right now, breaking down their struggles and sharing pro tips so that the rest of us mere mortals can level up our training and climbing. Guys, I've been working really hard on this and I think you're going to love it. Episodes are around eight minutes long and they are packed with more stoke than you'll find at Miguel's in October. Pop on over and hit subscribe to the show, youtube.com slash at the struggle climbing show. We've got two fresh episodes dropping every week with the biggest names in climbing. Plus we're doing a big giveaway right now, over $500 in a training bundle for those who subscribe before the end of May. I'm so psyched. Thank you all for checking it out. And a shout out to Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor here at the struggle. I use all of their amazing science-backed performance-enhancing products, y'all. They've really helped me to train harder, recover faster, and climb better than ever before. I can say that truly and honestly. I start my day with their collagen to keep my fingers strong and injury-free. And then right now, as the days are getting warmer here at the Red, I'm keeping my hydration topped up with their electrolyte blend called Flow. It tastes amazing. And it allows me to climb longer as I sweat it out on those long, pumpy routes. If you are looking to take your climbing and your training to the next level, you got to check out Fizzy Vantage. I honestly cannot say enough good things about this company and its products. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off at fizzyvantage.com. 
And lastly, just a huge thanks to all the patrons out there who are listening right now and supporting me as I work really hard to bring you all content that I hope brightens your day and improves your climbing. If you're not a patron and you're in a position to support the show, I have got some really cool perks for patrons, including pro clinics from some of the guests of the show that are exclusive to patrons as well as Apple subscribers. I'm going to share more about that at the end of the episode, but first, let's enjoy an enormo bump with the man himself, Chris Kalous. I just, you know, my instinct in 30 years of climbing is to push back, always to push back against the rule changes. And it may seem like an intractable and ignorant stance, but I just feel like the ecosystem has both ends. It's like there's one end where the park service or whatever entity wants to shut down climbing completely and don't understand it and all the way down. And then the other end is the intractable dirtbag climber who even reasonable regulations should be stopped kind of thing. So like, I, I honestly believe that the ecosystem needs both and I tend to be over on that other end. And that's just the way those management systems work. They have to justify their existence. So anyhow, that's my game I play, even if I'm like intellectually like, yeah, what's the big deal about permit systems? I'm still going to be like down with the man kind of thing. Yeah, like, well, Fight against the dying of the light. What, what we have here is failure, failure to, to communicate. communicate. That's right. <laughs> was it a second grade teacher? What was it that uh, that has made you so to the core to to fight the man? And by the way, I share it with you. So I'm, I'm always interested in where people like us just like <laughs> every time I see anybody in any fucking uniform. I don't care if right. it's a McDonald's uniform. I'm like, what do you think? You're better than me? Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I think I've always been a little bit of a loner as a kid and all the way through the systems of authority that you're put in automatically, which is obviously starts with preschool and kindergarten and on, on up. And it's fascinating watching my kid who's, uh, you know, um, my child is diagnosed with autism. He's a divergent, neurally divergent thinker is a nice way to put it. And he's already not fitting in. And it's just fascinating to me how from, honestly, from preschool, like the system makes you, I mean, it's basically trying to train you to fit in and like fitting in and quote unquote being normal is honestly like the goal of our lives. I mean, if you listen to society, like the apparent the fear a parent has of their child not being normal is this overriding fear. And it's interesting because I think I was against that as a kid and I'm against it now as a parent. And I mean, I've been forced into this role because my son is not going to fit into school very well. It's going to be a struggle for him to use our word here. And, uh, sure. and I don't mind. And I want to head off like the real pain of it. But anyway, back to the idea that like school is where you either engender this anti-establishment idea or you give into it. And it's really like the test of it all that's, I think, fascinating. And I think it started then. I was a loner and not, not like creepy loner, I don't think, but had my couple friends. I was that kid and was happy to do that. And I pushed against 
bullying in high school. I was small, and so I'd been bullied. And by the time I was in high school, I was, even though I was still small, I was confident enough to to push back against the bullies because I saw I could call their bluff. Luckily, I maybe one time I called it and got punched in the face, but <laughs> usually it worked. And yeah, and to tie it into climbing, I mean, so much when I started climbing, and you hear this on the Enormacast, and you and if you've interviewed older climbers, you hear it is that climbing actually really spoke to a lot of kids like me and you that were looking for something else and even subjecting myself to a team sport, which you hear a lot against that with climbers. That is another role of authority where you're giving over your free time and your life and to be yelled at by a coach. And frankly, I just never could do it. I never could handle it. I, I wouldn't last. And yeah, so the climbing thing does come in there where it seemed to be this world where you were your own agent and there was these sort of, I guess, these ephemeral rules to it, but really it looked like a free space to do what you wanted to do, to go where you wanted to go. And that feeling, which I had 30 years ago when I started it, is part of why I push back against regulation even now, even re even apparently reasonable regulation. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, so. It's really interesting. I we just jumped right in here and we'll probably wander back into the format in a second, but this is an interesting topic for me. So if for nothing else for us just to jam on for a second is the kind of this idea of like deviance, like the word deviant has gotten this bad rap, like whether it's like deviant is somebody who's bad or trying to do bad things or is into things that are taboo or whatever, but like a deviant is somebody who deviates right from the guardrails or the expectations that society has put out. And I was like always the class clown and always screwing around and like never was following the rules. And fortunately, my parents didn't crush that. And, you know, it, it took me out on my own path. And I think a lot of climbers are kind of, it seems like, like if there were a bell curve for those who weren't into conforming, rock climbers seem to fall into that. And the sport now has shifted more towards kind of mainstream and conformity. And so now it's this interesting, like brackish water of the deviance and the non-deviance. But I don't know, maybe every generation thinks like they're special in that regard. But if you look back at Royal Robbins versus Warren Harding and that kind of thing, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was, maybe there were deviance and conformists even in the earliest days of climbing. You're a climbing historian. What do you think? Uh, has it Has it changed all that much or is it still just kind of repeating the old tropes? I think it's, I think it, has changed. But again, we have this danger of, of, of the rosy colored glasses because I've been doing it for 30 years and the olden times were always the better times. Right. So, you know, with that caveat, I think it de definitely has changed in terms of, I mean, even just the fact that they're, the messaging is so much more powerful now. You have these media outlets. If you start climbing, you have these media outlets bombarding you with how to be a climber. And, and I think one of the things that older climbers will lament is that you did find it and you did have to figure it out. But with that said, I mean, we found the rules and you figured out what you were supposed to do and what you weren't supposed to do. So you did, within a pursuit, you're going to fall into these conformities. So we're not like saying that I was some sort of like genius outward thinker. But yeah, I mean, I think for sure that it, I think anybody can look at it and say that we have this this media format that tells us how to do it in a much more set and concrete way. And maybe for the better, maybe for the worse, but. Which I think is just a perfect segue for us to talk about what people should climb and how they should climb and what the rules yeah. are. So yeah, let's, 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 
That's what we're here for, right? <laughs> That's right. Let's let's jump in. Um, you are a heck of a climber and uh, and historian and somebody who genuinely loves the sport. Let's just talk about like climbing for a second in general, like how you view the kind of the concept of struggle as a climber. You've got a pretty long lens now, 30 years plus climbing, I think. So, That's right, yeah. Yeah. So what does struggle mean to you as a climber? You know, I've been thinking about this in the context of what you talk to climbers about and having listened to some of your shows and I like the struggle of it for me. And it's a, like a long view of a 30 years of it. It's interesting because we started with talking about this nonconformist thing and, and it's possibly that for me, like how you sort of maintain this lifestyle, this thing that you're so dedicated to that takes all of your brain power in your twenties and all of your physical strength and but it is buffeted against all these other needs in life. And if we disregard those days when I didn't really care about any of that other stuff, I mean, for me, the struggle, which is, a, I think, a little different perspective, is of the last, say, 10 years, specific, more specifically the last six years since my son was born, is how to keep that alive, how to continue to feel legit as a climber, and just how to carve out this thing that I find so essential in the face of all those other pulls that you have in life. And if you want to talk about what my struggle has been of like the last decade, it's simply that. And woven into that is being fit because that's also finding time to climb and finding time to train and finding time to, to maintain. And then also this kind of push and pull with relationships and with where you prioritize it in your life. And then this weird thing about like letting myself down. And I struggle with that a lot actually is this idea of like, when I go out to climb, I want to perform a certain way and that's getting less and less possible and also less and less frequent and how to kind of not give up, not beat myself up and have a reality check about who I am, where I am in my life. But with the idea that I can't give into that either. Like, I can't be like, life's well, a struggle right now. I got all these things I got to go. I have a six-year-old kid, so f fuck it. Like, not, do, not going as far as the fuck it is, I guess, the struggle. Like, I still have to try, and I still have to be happy, and I still have to have it fulfill myself. And that's my struggle at the moment. Yeah. Or like I said, for a solid decade. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that is a different perspective than some of the kind of the young up and coming athletes that I've had on the show, but I've had veterans on the show as well from Lynn Hill to Eric Hurst. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, obviously it's different when you're looking back at decades of a career, as opposed to maybe just years in, in some of these athletes cases, how much of your kind of identity, your ego, your self-worth do you think is defined by or wrapped up in how hard you climb or the objectives that you choose maybe now compared to like in your earlier days when you were in your 20s? It's interesting because it's more, I'll have to admit that it's more so now. Oh, so interesting. It, again, because it's like fading, if you will. Uh -huh. um, you know, and I think about some people, Chuck Odette is this guy that everybody points out. It climbs like, I don't know, super hard and he's like Crushes. 95 years old or whatever. <laughs> Just kidding, Chuck, if you're listening, I know you're not that old. But yeah, it's almost like it's weirdly 
more important now. Not that I climb as hard as I ever have, but like this whole idea of maintaining. And one thing you also mentioned there that interesting because we're so focused on performance and I am as well and a grade or a certain climb that's of a certain level. But you also said objectives. And one of the things that like nags at me as much as anything is the fact that I don't go out anymore and do like super big, rad, even around the world type objectives. And that was a real driver for my climbing for a long time was to go out and do big roots places, whether it was in the Ghost River in Canada, whether it was in Jordan or Sicily or these other places that I put up big first ascents. And Nothing like totally amazing get on the cover of what used to be Climbing Magazine or whatever, but that feeling of having that objective out there was a real driver for me. Next year, I'm going to do this, and I'm earning, I'm working right now, and it sucks, but it's because I have this at the other end. And the struggle of like losing that for the moment, um, it's, it's not so bad anymore, but a, a few years ago, it was, it weighed pretty heavily on me. And I've said this before in, in different ways, but like it's you're kind of looking for a level of fulfillment that I think may just be mythological anyway, or you're never going to have exactly what you had in the past. I mean, we all sort of live with that to a certain extent. And so it's like I would get on an airplane for 10 days to go to Europe to try to do something. And the whole time I would be like stressing out about this has to feel like it used to feel. And so the very stress of like, Having that expectation would probably freaking ruin it. I mean, I, I don't know if that makes sense in the sense of struggle, but but that's kind of where I'm at as far as like my legacy and trying to maintain some version of what I consider like a legit climber. Yeah. No, I love that perspective. It's something that I've been feeling more acutely myself. I'm 43 and already kind of acutely aware that I'm on the other side of going to be my strongest self and my freest self and two kids and two jobs and this kind mm -hmm. of thing. But I think that a concept of expectation is the fun killer. And so I've been trying to, mm -hmm. I've been trying to set goals for my climbing, but also simultaneously re relieving or alleviating myself of expectation, which is a really hard, almost like oxymoronic thing to do. But like, you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of good. And if, yeah, I could get out and I could do a five-day thing, if I could get to the bugs or if I could just get to the valley, I mean, would it, like it's like hard to leave the family, but if I could just do that and it might not be the epic that I've been looking for, but I bet it'll still be pretty freaking fun if I can do it. I'm not quite in that season right now where I can go out and do some real big things. I'm not also not at the talent level where I could do some real big things unless Jordan Cannon were just going to like drag me up some fun thing somewhere. But I think it is interesting to hear that that perspective from you in maybe it's more acute even because you have gone on some spectacular expeditions and done some incredible accomplished some incredible objectives out there and so is it like chasing the dragon do you feel like the next one needs to challenge you in a way or accomplish something in a way that you've never felt before or can you get out there and just do something that maybe 20 years ago or 10 years ago, Chris Kloos would have just thought was not all that impressive, but through your current lens, can you say, well, a dad of a six-year-old can sneak away for a handful of days and do something that's still pretty rad and really enjoy it? Or has your, has your style of climbing just completely changed because of just life circumstances currently? Yeah. I mean, a couple answers to that is that 
for sure it it was and i think i'm getting better at it the chasing the dragon idea and that and that is that idea of like i want to go out there and have this like wild crazy experience that if not one up something else but it's in that realm and but it reminds me of the backpacker people the people who just wander the world going hostile to hostile place to place and as climbers we like we interface with those people sometimes on our trips but they're they're just going to party in the next town and they're on the same boat of where like they had some crazy wild experience and then they want to go to the next town and have something of the same vein and but eventually you're just it's just a drudgery of like i feel like like just trying to like find some weird guy in the street that you can remark on later or something but the trips are the same way it's not necessarily about doing something that's harder for me and it never was like oh i did this hard thing i got to do the harder thing which is something we do within like training and things like that but more of that like i need to have even a wilder sort of experience or go to a weirder place or a more more difficult place to exist like i mentioned Canada and Jordan and it's like yeah going to Canada is not a big deal you can go and have an awesome adventure on those gnarly peaks up there but the actual place is it's pretty easy to get along versus a place like Jordan sure so but uh, within the context of that question too is this idea that one thing I have sort of replaced it with is this is performance and because I have changed over to being probably as pure a sport climber as I've ever been in my life right now. In the past, it was a large mix of sport climbing, but I was that sport climber who was like, I'm just getting fitness to be to be stronger on these other types of climbs. It's good for me. I like it, but it's not like I'm that into it, which is also a defense mechanism because I sucked at it. Nowadays, I'm more, I have specific goals, climbs or grades. And so somewhere in my mind, I'm doing some type of like preparation for that, whether it's actual peer training with someone like Chris Hampton, who I've worked with in the past, or if it's some lame version of training where you just hit the hangboard at the end of your boulder session for 10 minutes and you're like, I trained right. today. Or or if it's more commonly lamenting the fact that I'm not training and I'm going to have to rely on what I call the pull it out of your ass ascent, <laughs> that you just, for some reason, you got a good night's sleep or whatever and you happen to climb better that day yeah it's not pretty no but you started at the bottom it. <laughs> you got to the top <laughs> exactly it was a perfect Which i think are the funnest descents but but not something you can hang your goals on if you will yeah this is a perfect i appreciate you being such a professional and giving me a great segue to now talk about training and maybe just through the lens of kind of what you're going through now and would love to understand where you struggle with your training and also get just get a sense for what training is for you and looks like for you now, maybe compared to what it was like 10 or 20 years ago, a wildly different time with regard to sports science and training programming and that kind of thing. So where are you struggling right now, Chris? Yeah. Put that in context is 20 years ago, there was, I was not training. There certainly was training. I'm not going to say that, but I lived a lifestyle where I climbed enough, I thought to just do that. And I didn't, gyms were fairly non-existent and you just, yeah, I just had that lifestyle to be able to be, stay fit because I was climbing and also live on, be happy with natural ability to continue going. And then as some people who've listened to the show or, or pay attention to what I do for some reason, I did formally start training a few years ago. I asked 
Chris Hampton, who's a friend of mine at Power Company, not only to do a program with him, but to train. And he actually stepped into actually training me, even though he'd moved on from coaching people personally. And that's given me, as much as anything, the tools. A, two things is it it showed me what is potential to training because even the short time that I was really under his wing, it definitely helped a lot. He showed me a lot about injury prevention and even talking to Jared Vaggie in the past has helped me with that. The climbing doctor. And so I, yeah, the climbing doctor. So I've like seen the light and then I guess this will be the lament of it all is the, still the time thing is that I can very easily fall out of patterns of training and I feel it and I feel myself get weaker. It's cool training when you're my age in a sense is that you really do feel the effects both good and bad and also injury, things like that. And I haven't injured myself like distinctly, but I have the aches and the pains and the potentials always right at the edge. And, uh, and so I guess the struggle still is motivation and time. And it's motivation is partially the old dog, new tricks thing is I still, I have say 25 years of reinforcement that I can just get away with it. Um, and it was very successful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not necessarily on a grade level wise, people are usually surprised at how low my top grades are. But as far as just getting the goals I had done and being a prolific climber that did cool things, it was like I said, 25 or 26 years of that reinforcement is difficult to overcome when it comes time to to carve out that hour to a few days a week to train is it can it's like my first excuse so to speak is like ah I can still climb what am I worried about yeah I mean first of all you can still climb and I wouldn't consider your grades low at all you're a hell of a climber one of the interesting maybe evolutions of your style of climbing I mean you've climbed everything of course every style out there but to be going from big wall or out at Indian Creek style climbing where it might not be sport style kind of limit climbing into what you're doing now as a quality of life where you can get out and do a half day at the crag and still be home for dinner and this kind of thing. I know for me, that was a significant challenge moving from kind of the granite multi-pitch of Takeets to these overhung pockets of the Red River Gorge and all of a sudden at 40 being like, oh, I should train my fingers, which I had never done. And it is a little bit of an old dog, new trick thing. So what have you responded to? Like, what do you think is working with your training now focusing on sport climbing? What's the main area of a focus? And what do you think is supporting that if you have limited time to focus on training? A lot of people who who train and they train very specifically and they have these specific projects, they, they have a real good feedback loop of what is working specifically in the sense of like this level of fingerboarding or we talk about all the different the repeaters and the time on time off and all that stuff like when you're climbing a lot and you're going from project to project you can get a ton of feedback like this specific thing worked and for me and the thing i talked about chris was just motivating me to have a general fitness um as he put it just hang on those tendons and that's going to help a lot and you know again we'll we'll get into this old guy thing again, but the injury prevention has been very effective for me. And what but does the that truth look like? Is, Sorry to, um, to interject, but like what okay. what injuries are you trying to prevent specifically? I can just feel and hear, literally hear, because they're right next to my ears. Shoulders. My shoulders. Yeah. And my hearing's going. So one of these days it'll all like it'll all like balance Problem out. Problem fixed. But uh, 
<laughs> but yeah, my shoulders are definitely a weak area or a pain area or a place that I guard. And the thing about guarding them is that a lot of times I'm not doing moves with my maximum effort or avoiding moves that I feel like might stress them. And that's a feedback thing that, that making them stronger can definitely fix or help with. If they're stronger, then I'm not as scared to pull in that direction in that way. And so a lot of, I mean, it was just talking with Chris and then also with physical therapists at other times about those opposition exercises, about how you strengthen without making it worse, doing sort of motions and things over and over again that where you're, where you're actually kind of making the problem worse and, and that kind of thing. And then also that idea of moving a little bit away from just climbing specific training to a wider range of movements, especially pushing with the shoulders. I was just talking to someone the other day about that specific thing of doing more dumbbell work to push around them. And again, it's like a good feedback loop in that they get stronger, then you can climb harder because you aren't as protective of certain movements and certain joints. But then with the same ideas, like when I'm in the gym, I'm not, I don't push those types of movements because it's not you know, I'm looking long-term of like getting this particular problem on this particular day in the gym is not as important as like protecting my shoulders at this moment. And uh, yeah, I'll so go to, that, the, that I'll kind go of to the death on those gym problems, yeah. man. I know. Yeah. That pink V5 is, I will tear my rotator cuff to get that thing. I don't know what it is. Well, yeah, I know. And it's not an age thing in that sense, because it's like, I've talked to so many people who had all these outdoor goals and that, and their season got shut down because they jacked themselves up in the gym ostensibly training to try to do those routes outdoors. And so right. everybody knows there's this like line where you where you can cross and ruin your season, but how to find that where you're still trying hard and still climbing to your limits. So you're getting sort of physical improvement, but not going too far is obviously the line that people have to cross probably a couple of times before they find it. Uh, so yeah, yeah what... I mean, so it's not necessarily an age thing. It just may, means that it may be a little bit more prevalent, but I know plenty of, I mean, shit, every single guy I know who boulders hard in their 20s eventually blows something up in the gym, almost. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Guy I mean, or girl, sorry. Yeah, girl. every climber for sure. I mean, it's kind of an inevitable thing if you're pushing yourself that hard, but then we've got some great science to help them get back. And I've, right. a lot of the climbers that I've had on the show have talked about recovering from injury, and that kind of goes hand in hand with rest and how do you look at rest now as it maybe compares to your earlier days of climbing? Well, I'll tell a story. I was in a Rapalies in Australia like a long time ago, so in, in the early 90s. And, and I just was there, and I happened to be camping with some really good early sport climbers of the day. This, this guy, particularly Garth Miller, who Australian listeners will know that name. And I just climbed and climbed and climbed, and all of a sudden I was just like talking about how like, I couldn't get up anything. I was probably, I was a solid sort of like or easy 5'11 type trad climber there. And I was like falling off of 5'8 and 5'9 and like just felt terrible. And Garth was like, you probably, what's your rest day schedule? And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm in Australia. I've spent all this money on this plane ticket. I'm going to climb until I'm dead, you know? <laughs> and it was like the first, and he was like, yeah, you need to take some time off, dude. And so I took three days off and I think I probably could have taken two weeks off yeah looking at it now but three days was this excruciating rest period even in australia where there was all sorts of shit to do you know go to the billabong 
drink a lot, whatever. But it was, I just remember that as my first like intimate exposure to the idea of not climbing, even though you have the day off, like you have all the time in the world, you should just be climbing was my attitude before that. So with that in mind, moving forward to now, I feel like I get too much rest. I mean, back to the idea of not having time to actually train when I do it, it's almost like I'm fighting a little bit of decrepitude versus actually not being rested. So it's like I'm in a, I'm in a time in my life where rest is rest from climbing, actual sleeping and rest from like everything else is not right. as easy to come by, but actually rest from climbing is not really a problem right now at all. And I wish it was. And I love the fact that you talk to so many people for whom it is, but <laughs> yeah. not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, most of the guests on the show are in their twenties and living in an apartment with four other people. And all they want to do is go to the gym all the time for obvious reasons. So it's right. a, yeah, it's a different situation than having a young kid a family, a mortgage, house mm -hmm. projects, construction projects, yeah. and other obligations. But I think it's a very valuable perspective because for those who are listening right now who are f falling into the former category and find yourselves training too much, just be appreciative that's maybe a problem because it's so funny that perspective is a tough thing. It's hard to imagine that there will, a time will come where you won't just be able to sit at the gym with a bunch of barefoot people all hours of the day. You'll actually have shit to do. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was going to interject earlier when we were talking about expedition climbing and going away. It's like one of the reasons I, you know, it's like I know these people who just, they go back to the like Indian Creek or whatever or here in Rifle like year after year, month after month. And I did the same thing to a certain extent, but I'm like, no. Like you need to go somewhere besides there, like, cause you're not going to have these endless seasons for the rest of your life. So f get on an airplane, like go somewhere else and climb somewhere else. Don't you've climbed, you've climbed there plenty and you can go back another time, but like, don't squander your free time because it ain't going to be there forever. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, forget anyway. you old man. We're going to climb. <laughs> exactly. We're going to climb hard forever. Climbs. Yeah. I'm going to lay back again <laughs> all summer. <laughs> Let's um, let's turn our sights towards nutrition and pass. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean this. We'll can, make this one short. Yeah, this is a real typically the weakest chapter there is. You know, Jordan Cannon talked to me for about ten minutes about how he eats Nutella with a spoon in his van, and that right, was like the right. that was the bulk of the uh, nutrition chapter. But. You know, we know more now than we did then. Were you one of those guys that was eating cat food at Camp 4? Or were, were you... God, I read an account that you had of going on this thing out in Patagonia and you forgot the food bag or something like that. And like, you know, I mean, like, it just seems like back when you're younger, we could climb on nothing. But do you focus on nutrition much or what has been a struggle for you in that area? I mean, I, again, years of reinforcement, having the metabolism I have, having the build that I have. If you have, if you do struggle with weight out there, I'm one of those infuriating per people who doesn't, and my body just doesn't want to change in terms of that. I even still. A, yeah, even still, I can gain a few pounds here and there, but it's not really that relevant. And again, like I understand that is my body and people out there who do struggle with that is not as easy as that. And I, again, I've been reinforced by terrible eating habits because it worked. I mean gummy bears and just piling on bad food and um, eating kind of as much as I want 
And in the recent years, I can feel it a little bit more and I get a little bit of a thickness around the center, which again, like anyone else's perspective would be like, what are you talking about? But it's all a matter of percentages and I can feel a little bit and, but I just don't, I understand the basics of veggies are better than than meats and carbohydrates and what a carbohydrate is and all those sorts of things. But that's about as far as it goes. And I do have these moments and I talk, I think I talked on that podcast with Chris about this, with Hampton about this of like, if I feel a little heavy, I'll skip meals and which isn't necessarily the healthiest way to do it. Or I'll, I find myself skipping breakfast because sometimes I just forget kind of thing. Um, <laughs> right. Especially more when I was painting houses and getting up early in the morning and stuff, I'd like make a burrito and then forget about it kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have a good perspective on nutrition as far as that goes in terms of performance and things like that. What about before we just shift off of this, because I'm right. excited to dive into tactics and mental yeah. game with you, considering that the type of climbing that, that you've done, I'm just like to dive into that. But how about any sort of, does a memory, an anecdote come to mind? Did you ever haul a grill up to Dolt Tower and grill up steaks like Orrin Harding or like what was when you were doing these big kind of expeditions when you were off around the world or just even climbing some big walls here, what were you doing to stay fueled? And was there any crazy beta that people were using in order to keep fueled without having to haul too much crap? Or were you hauling way more than you needed to? I mean, what, just like give me a snapshot of what life was like. If you want to go back to the big wall days, it is funny. There is a funny little story. It's not anything to do with like a lavish type of thing. It's actually kind of the opposite is in the olden times you would, and this is really common. You would just, you'd buy cans of whatever and you would just toss them into your haul bag and it would essentially be a can a day or an evening can thing. And then the rest of the time was like snacks and trail mix and stuff like that. And the evening cans were generally like just a can of chili or a can of beans, but you, I didn't never brought a stove. I did in the winter, but in the summertime, I'd never bring a stove. So you were eating, you were just cracking them open and people have seen these pictures of people just spooning shit out of a can, not dog food. I wasn't quite that. I wasn't down there. Um, I think that's a little bit apocryphal, this idea that people were commonly eating cat food or dog food. But anyway, but the funny thing was, is that I would bring SpaghettiOs. And so at first I would like, if I was doing a seven day wall, seven cans the math, the spreadsheet was very simple. Right. I would bring like two cans of SpaghettiOs and then a variety of other things. And as I went on through my kind of career, I would like on the wall, I would pine for SpaghettiO night and I would like hold off and then have one and then like, okay, I'll eat these beans. And then maybe on the last night I'll eat SpaghettiOs or whatever. <laughs> so basically I eventually just replaced everything and I just had like maybe six nights of SpaghettiOs and a night of beef stew or something like that. And I guess that's my only story is that I would like basically just eat SpaghettiOs every single night. And I was, you know, in my late 20s, so it's not like a 12-year-old or anything. But man, I love those spaghetti. They're salty. Yeah. You know, there's so much salt. There was like so much salt in them. And it's funny how those those nutrition things do get flipped when you're on a, any expedition, whether it's cold or whether it's not. But like, all these things you're supposed to avoid, you know, sodium and fat and all these things, those things become like the lifesaver. It's like those Arctic expeditions, those guys would have killed for some fat when they're up there. 
eating what's left of their hard tack or whatever. Yeah, so, that's what you need um, at that point. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so it's funny that you just, you, and you really do, you just get to eat whatever the hell you want and you're going to burn it off and be in a calorie deficit whether you like it or not. So just munch on all that garbage. And still commonly the practice when I was talking to Emily Harrington about Golden Gate in a day and she was saying she was eating Cheetos up on the wall and leaving little orange fingerprint like tick marks from the freaking Cheetos on the big wall. And she brought a burrito up there. And um, do you still eat SpaghettiOs or is it like when you overeat them, you can never open a can again? No, I would, I could totally eat them. And I've been thinking about it because my son's six, you know, and it's like you go through that aisle and you're supposed to be this sort of conscientious adult parent now in a way that our parents never were and their parents really never were. Totally. Um, about <laughs> organic food and this and that and everything else. But there'll be a there'll be a threshold we'll cross one of these days and I'll get some SpaghettiOs and see if Miles likes them. And then we can eat them together. <laughs> yeah, my, my, I'm, if your kid's like anything like my kid, my kid is a freaking snob. And every childhood memory I try to get him excited about, he's like, no, I don't like it. I hate that. So good luck. I hope, I hope your kid yeah, respects no, no, you more eat, than mine does. Yeah, we eat every other night mac and cheese. So what are you going to do? <laughs> exactly. Good. Okay, let's, let's talk about tactics now. There's so much to dive in with you here. I've got some kind of specific examples and things I want to talk about, but I guess I'll start broad and we can go narrow. Tactically speaking, where have you struggled or where do you struggle? Um, I mean, I don't know if this fits into this category, but I think it's funny and or not funny. It's counterintuitive that I actually do struggle with fear a lot. And I don't know if this fits in here, but maybe we can get into the tactics of dealing with it. But as someone who's, I mean, I think I was actually at one time most famous for climbing hard aid walls, despite the aid ran or whatever, or because of it. I mean, that was part of the legitimacy of the aid ran is that I had done those things. And so- And not died. And you were disappointed, right. in fact, that yeah, you had was, not right. died. <laughs> so- Isn't that, that is like the weird underlying caveat of that entire thing that, that I'm glad you clued into, but not everybody does, is that, yeah, there was a slight disappointment that I wasn't dead. <laughs> but yeah, and so it's like that. But you've done that just, just to set the table for the listeners, that you have aided some really gnarly routes. You've kind of rope soloed or aid soloed some really pretty puckery type stuff up to A5. Of course, the aid rant was about the, the A3, A4, A5. And we'll link to the aid rant so everybody who's listening can know what the hell we're talking about right now. You know, and stuff in the Black Canyon. I mean, like, there's definitely some sketchy stuff out there. And I'll let you continue because we're you're wanted to talk about fear here and maybe the tactics of fear. But yes, I think the maybe the common understanding and maybe it's a misconception of people who are looking at the climbs that you've done and the climber that you had been for quite a long time there is that there was maybe a lack of fear or an incredibly high amount of confidence to be able to take on some of these routes that no many people wouldn't get close to. So yeah, how did that evolve and how did that play into your tactics or fear? Well, it's just, it did evolve and it evolved away from that in a lot of ways. And I think I brought this up a bunch, but the idea that I was sort of this different person and it seemed natural to me because of the way I started climbing. Like we throw around this idea of trad climbing and what that is, is a little bit amorphous at this point. But, you know, I, I started in the, not the era, like you don't ever fall from the olden times when your ropes would break and stuff. But if you start out as a track climber and that was the only option be, because sport climbing didn't quite exist, 
you do operate in this world of like you're not just casually whipping onto everything the way you might in the gym or the way you might on a sport climb. You were gradually trying harder things and finding the edge, but not necessarily just taking giant whippers all the time. And so I think I just brought that mentality of like going up to the edge and trying to find this place where I could keep climbing without endangering myself or falling or whatever. So I think all those things started to be really natural to to climb on hard things where you were in no fall zones, not just blindly. Was, I guess what I'm getting at is I wasn't just some daredevil or some person who didn't understand the risks. It was more that I, I could creep to the edge and I had practiced creeping to the edge and not the edge of dying, but even just the edge of like, what am I capable of accomplishing without falling? Whether it's a safe fall or a dangerous fall, those kind of things, there wasn't really a delineation that much. You just tried not to fall. And so I think that helped along the way. And then I think growing older is, I've talked to so many people who've just said that they lose that ability to, I think it's mostly ability to forget the consequences because whether it's happened to you or it's happened to people, you've been confronted with the consequences a number of times by then. And I haven't had a terrible, serious climbing accident, but I know plenty of people who have. And so it's like, you, you start to learn, if you will. And I think that has something to do with it. But I also think, I mean, there's just like a natural reduction in testosterone and things like that too. So, but getting at that, I mean, I've grown to be a little more fearful or in a lot of ways, a lot more fearful. And I can be above a bolt on a sport climb and intellectually understand that things are completely safe. And maybe even it's a fall I've taken already. And I still, I was joking just the other day that we went out to do this climb and there was this big run out I was scared of. And I fell off the run out like right at the end of it. And it was fine. And I knew it was fine. And I took this long but safe soft whipper and the next time I was up there I was just as scared I thought it was going to like cure me and be like okay now I know but I was just as scared so yeah like just I don't know I think people probably think because of that reputation that I'm never scared but I struggle with it for sure and it reduces my performance when you're climbing scared you're wasting energy Arno will tell you that a million times and but it's a real I don't know it's a real hard place to to deal with and I think, I think it's probably one of the largest struggles in climbing, to be honest with you, if you get away from like the top sort of elite. And I think that even the top elite are dealing with it in some ways too. I think they do too. I find your fear encouraging. I appreciate you being afraid because I think one would unfairly assume that a climber as experienced as you are and who has faced truly gripping high consequence scenarios out on any number of climbs may not have fear whatsoever when you're climbing something that's bolted, but we can't overcome evolutionary psychology, right, you know, right, yeah. <laughs> like we're, pro we're programmed to be afraid of falling and dying regardless of how well, rational or irrational it is. The funny thing is that I am that person. I am looking at myself and saying those same things. I'm like, why, dude, why are you getting so scared? Like, look at all this shit you did. Like I'm going through my resume and pointing <laughs> at things that like should, you know, should prove me more brave than I am. And that's the other thing I wanted to bring up. And maybe this fits in here too, is that like the beating yourself up over it is not helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not helpful because you're obsessing about it and it's just going to get worse. And that's maybe the tactic thing of like, how do we take care of this, this innate fear in us? And I think like 
angrily trying to suppress it is not a decent tactic. And I don't, any coach that's like telling you that you should fire them immediately. <laughs> Just try not to think about yeah. it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. It's like, <laughs> it's everybody's like, it's every 1980s movies like mean dad or coach where it's just like just suck it up suck it up yeah. right exactly um yeah i like that i mean i think that's something that we all face but you have faced it more acutely i'm thinking about the serpent it was a route that you took on that at least from some of the reading that i've done i think it's rated x maybe rated r rated x somewhere in there and it sounded terrifying Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a couple pitches fell off the route not too long after you were on it. And yeah, that's the st that's part of the story. Yeah, the the cliff notes is that it was a free version of the painted wall here in the Black Canyon, and um, put up by Je or freed by Jeff Aki and a few. I think he had a few different partners on it, but forgive me if I'm forgetting you. That also helped him with it, and we went down to climb it, and it's. The XR thing is a little bit shaky, but it, just to say it, you're going to have to climb hard on on difficult and sometimes crummy rock and climb a long ways between your pieces. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like A5. If you don't fall, you don't really know what would have happened. And probably most of the time you'd have been fine, but that's hard to like remember when you're actually out doing it. So a friend of mine, Rob Van Arnhem and I, who had climbed a lot in the black, and we felt like we'd graduated to trying it, which can also be seen as like, part of us like felt like it was sort of required climbing at the level we had been climbing at. And so we made these huge plans to do it. And the ascent came down to us climbing about five pitches. Both of our internal dialogue was getting more and more scared about it. We were also running late, which meant that we'd probably climb a lot of it in the dark. And, and finally I went out on the lead and I pulled a pin out with my fingers and things like that. And it just finally shut me down. And I came back and I was like, dude, let's get out of here. I don't think we, we got it in us. And like, before I could even finish the sentence, he was like, yeah, totally. I'm out. We're out. Let's get out of here. <laughs> and so basically like the lesson was we were both internally thinking that, but neither one of us wanted to be the guy sure. who shut the ascent down. And him and I are, were great close partners. And so we just came eye to eye before it was too late, so to speak. Um, the addendum is that the following year, some, sometime pretty close in between pitch of it that we had climbed actually fell off this huge pillar. Jesus. Both of us had remarked this weird thing where just feeling spooked on it, but also we would like reach into the cracks and there, it was like super warm inside the cracks, like, like to the point of thinking like your fingers were getting breathed on by some creature that was in there and like. And just kind of like a creakiness to it that both had spooked us. And so I don't know if we were picking up these sorts of things, but obviously the pressure was there that was going to pop this thing off of there. So anyhow, it actually fell off and then these other guys went down there and tried to do it and were just completely lost. And yeah, and that, I think that's been the last ascent of it. I think it's gone. So, Gosh. Um, but yeah, and as far as like what it did, I mean, that, that's a long tale because I think about it often and... I mentioned how we sort of, you know, we wanted to do it because that's what motivated climbers do is you just keep setting these goals. But then again, it also appeared on the top of our list because that's what we were supposed to do. It definitely was seen as this like super hard person graduation to go do that route because there's so much mythology with the black and a lot of it isn't, it's based in 
sort of stories and things, but you get down there and you climb a lot of routes and they're not so scary and they're, and the rock is good and the protection's okay. And you start to be like, where does this come from? And the thing about the serpent and that wall, it's like, it was there. It was all real. Like all the things were coming to play. And so it was like real black Canyon. So you had to go climb it if you're a real black Canyon climber. So it taught me a bunch of lessons It, in a little ways it both Rob and I, and Rob actually doesn't really even climb anymore. He's a surfer now, lives in Mexico. And we definitely graduated from being on that kind of train and on that sort of hamster wheel. And, and it's a little bit of a disappointment. I mean, there's climbers who, who did it, like Josh Wharton, you know, it's like those guys just kept going and did all the routes and you aspire to do that. But I was in my thirties and it definitely put in perspective of like, this is maybe time to pursue something else and attached to the A5 thing. Like if you keep pursuing this, you will eventually arrive at your destination, which is that you will find that route where you fall off and get hurt or killed. You will find it eventually if you keep looking for it, so to speak, which is again, part of the subtext of the A5 thing. It's like, you will find it and um, this will be the result. And I think it was one of the last really scary routes I ever tried. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it was, I mean, gosh, it was 15 years ago at least, if not a little more. I can't remember when it was. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think that is, it, it like harkens these like buddy cop movies where like the partner gets shot and he's, you know, he's always like just two days from retirement, you know? Right. And, and like you got out, right? You actually saw it for what it was and said, I've had enough of these times. I feel like. I no longer need this to be fulfilled as a climber and move on. And when fear comes into place, it's, I mean, we all wonder that with Alex Honnold or anybody else, like what's going to be, what's going to be the one that just pushes it a little bit too far. And you never know until you reach that point. But if you reach that point, then it, you may not be able to talk about it. And that's a little bit of the aid rant was in there as well. Although I think with the aid rant, you were saying there should be more people dying on A5, not, right. Yeah. <laughs> Not just topping out well, on bat hooks. The obvious question would be like, what do you do then about fear and like, what are your tactics? And the kind of fear I'm dealing with is irrational, mostly. There, there are sport climbs where that have moments you can't fall, you know, clipping the third clip a lot of times is actually, if you fell while you were clipping is pretty dangerous or whatever. But generally speaking, it's irrational fear. It's fear that I don't really shouldn't have. And I mean, I think my only antidote is honestly back weirdly is back to performance because if you're strong and you're feeling good and you're capable that for me it's that same thing of getting in the zone and you don't have those thoughts and it's kind of this thing where the the really good climbing head comes from also having a strong and capable body that doesn't that allows you to climb without hesitation without doubt and because as soon as you have those doubts or you're getting pumped and Arno talks about this a little bit too, you know, with power leaks and things like that. When you're getting pumped and you're not able to hang on as confidently as you want, that's when all of a sudden the alarm starts. And that's the fear that the countdown of like your hand will release in five, four, three, you know? So it's like they're combined. And I think that to only focus on quote unquote, the mental game with fear but not also realize that there's this physical element to it is a little bit of a of a road that's maybe a dead end eventually. You have to be a good climber to not get scared in my... And what I mean... Now, let me say it differently. You have to be on a ro route where you feel capable to not let that fear 
come in. Yeah, Stephen Dimmitt actually that doubt that gets in there. When I talked with Stephen, he that was his almost his entire strategy for dealing with fear was feeling so strong in his training and his physical preparedness that he could step up to a route and just say, I've got this. Like, whereas others talk to Hazel Finlay or a lot of the pros deal with fear of failure, maybe more so than fear of falling. But like in talking with Hazel, who coaches people through through fears, there are a number of different tactics that you can use from familiarizing yourself with that. Alex Honnold talked about that visualization that he uses or like slow, gradual exposure to scarier and scarier situations. But Stephen was a little bit on the other side, but a little bit more training focus, thinking if I could walk up there knowing that I'm strong and capable to do this route, I'll have full confidence when I pull onto it. Fear won't come in. So I think it's really interesting. I think we all cope with fear in different ways. There's certainly, it's very individualized. We're all very specific here. But hearing your perspective on that, especially considering your background as a climber, I think is is really beneficial and give some new perspective. So I appreciate well, that. Well, it's funny because ber berating myself actually probably worked pretty good. <laughs> like again, like 20 years ago, just like, you suck, quit being, you know, just like whatever, but it does not work anymore. And the only antidote is to feel confident. And sometimes that can come from rehearsal of a climb too, Rehearse, rehearsing it in a safer method, whether it's top roping or just going bolt to bolt. So you are not tired between whatever it is, or piece to piece with trad climbing. So, I mean, e either way of going up there and being able to get in, because what I've noticed also is like when I'm on a climb that I was formerly scared of, but I put the hammer down and I go into that place of just making those moves and trying as hard as I possibly can, I can arrive through these sections that I used to be scared about and having realized I never even thought about mm -hmm. it, even if I was a bit desperate, but like accessing that zone a lot of times has to do with physical and also just prep preparation and going back to free soloing, which is the ultimate sort of fear control. I just read um, Smoot's book about that. And, uh, you know, that's part of their, in the olden times, these guys weren't just flinging themselves at stuff. They had often rehearsed it ad nauseum, even John Backer and people like that. So yeah, all those sorts of things go into that fear control. And the fear affects performance so much, especially with roped climbing versus bouldering, although bouldering's scary as hell too, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, so it's like you got to have the both, so to speak. I think we, in, in just in that like tactics slash mental game conversation, I think we covered mental game pretty well. But is there anything else unique to the mental game that you find is a struggle or something that we didn't touch on here that fits into that chapter? Well, I mean, again, looking at a perspective of a long climbing career is I've been curious about how much all those things we talked about earlier, the pressures of normal life, so to speak, can diminish your performance, your mental game performance. And Within the concept of, or within the Enormacast and talking to so many climbers, the uh, probably the strongest thread through all of the people is this idea of being attracted to climbing because you, you get into this place if you're really in the moment and you can drop all those other things and you stop worrying about your anxiety in the case of like Molly Mitchell, who I talked to, her anxiety goes away if she's in the zone and Harvey Wright, he has these troubles with addiction and some of those thoughts can disappear. And 
everybody has some version of that that I've talked to, not even as extreme as Molly's. And that's the thing is like thinking about just what you didn't do at work or what you have to do at work. Or And I'm not a very good at meditating in the purest sense of it, but whatever it happens to be, whatever game you can play to get rid of those thoughts, even before you start climbing and not waiting necessary for them to go away in the moment, but disregarding them or getting into a zone where it's not on your mind. I, I, did, I guess that's not really helpful just to, it's telling you to not be afraid, but more the point is that stuff bombards you whether you think it is or not. Mm. And, and I have this thing where even on a day of climbing where I've trained myself, like if I've cleared it, I'm good. Like the family's set up, there's no need for me to be here today. I literally like on the drive, I think I do some sort of like mental flush of like, nope, until six o'clock tonight, it's gone. I'm free. I can just go climbing. And who you're climbing with is, I've talked many times about how my sort of common partner pool has diminished, but that's also a really important thing for your partnerships of like, be climbing with a person for whom you're very comfortable moving on from that sort of stuff and you're laughing and you're joking and the whole idea like oh all you ever do is talk about climbing i'm like fuck yeah that's what i'm gonna do today (laughs) i'm just gonna be climbing and i've joked about it ad nauseum about how like i get home and stuff's like what'd you guys talk about i'm like i don't know and it's because i realized that i'm not just being glib it's because i didn't we didn't necessarily talk about anything of like life consequence other than climbing and it's for me I have to do that because if I'm tying in and part of my brain is like, oh, I got to edit a normal cast tonight or whatever, which sounds stupid, but that's a pain in the ass. Oh, um, yeah. My performance goes down for sure. And, or the leap to that zone that I need to be in is further. And yeah, and I have to wait for it to happen versus before I leave the ground. And uh, so that, that's, again, I don't necessarily have a tactic or some advice about how you do it, but it's just food for thought that it's more powerful than I think people think it is, which harkens back to why in your twenties, when all you're doing is climbing and you don't have those problems, maybe your best performance or a professional climber whose life is primarily just being on the road, having fun climbing, you know, why that's effective is because they aren't juggling a job and or whatever else. And some of them are amazing at doing, I mean, like who knew that Tom Randall had kids till I talked, it's like, I had no idea that dude has this whole family until I talked to him on the podcast. I'm like, what are you talking about? You have children. <laughs> like, so some people are better at it than others, but I think most of us get stuck in this little, back to Arno's thing about power leaks. Like it's a major power leak to have that shit on your mind. Dude, I mean, yeah, just to tease out a couple things there before we move on, at least the things that resonated for me and everyone listening will take a certain nugget from what you just said. Can I say nugget? Yeah, Does Steven that's fine. own nugget? <laughs> no, he does okay. not. He, my child's nickname is the nugget. So. Oh, I love it. And that that was before Steven started the podcast. That predated so. the podcast. Yeah, Very good. So. so maybe he owns owes your kid yeah, some royalties exactly, or yeah. something. The lawsuit yeah. is in motion. <laughs> Very good. But like, got to shut that guy down somehow. I know it. He's doing too well. He's making the yeah, he's making exactly. the rest of us look bad. By, he needs to struggle. By being so good. Will. That's right. 
<laughs> but yeah, at least the ones that resonated for me, because I'm always carrying just so much my mind. I've got like this monkey mind because I've got a couple jobs and the family and, you know, there's always financial stresses and things like when you're just like trying to raise a family and this kind of thing. But the two things that you said that really resonated for me, and it definitely evokes my best climb days, is starting the day where everything's lined up for you to be able to just go and have a good day. Like the days where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do conference calls on the drive to the red, and then we can get a warm-up pitch in, but then I've got to step away and hop on a Zoom for 20 minutes, and then we can get two... RP burns, but then I've got to make sure I approve a couple documents. Like those are always, those days are never are performance days. You trash. Know? Total trash. They're training days. They're training days. <laughs> and even like the, the yeah. kids, like if I'm worried about my wife, like, oh, she's got to pick them up from this thing and take them to that thing. But like, if I can line it up where like my mom's going to pick my daughter up from dance so my wife doesn't have to worry about it. So now I don't feel like I'm imposing on my wife to go climbing, like mm-hmm. really like setting that stage so I can take off for nine hours and not have to think at all about work or home is critical. And then similarly, as you said, using that time on that drive, whether it's a meditation or just a kind of mental checklist or just listening to tunes, but really using that time to say, okay, I'm getting into it. And it's always easier, I find, when you've got a project because then you can just start like the psych is building because you're like mentally going through the beta and like before you go to bed the night before, you're probably going through the beta. And so like all that psych is there. So I think for me, like really setting the stage that day so that you can be fully focused on just having fun or trying hard. And also, at least for me, having a project, I think really helps because then I can focus on something and I'm not out there almost allowing myself to take phone calls because, oh, I'm not really going to try too hard today. And so, yeah, maybe let me wrap up this chapter with just a kind of a brief touch on projecting and how your process and how your mental game is different as you're maybe working on, you said you're working on something right now. You don't have to tell us what it is if you don't want to, but like essentially, you know, how does your projecting process change the way that you go into a climb day? I mean, I knew you were going to get to the nitty gritty and I just think like I'm the worst person to talk to because it's like I mean I'm like lately I'm just been like the total punt master um (laughs) and I don't exactly know why but but yeah I mean and so but I mean I think it's just the really what you said having a project is really the relevant thing is because this whole process doesn't as much matter it's like what we call like shopping. If you're going out to say our area rifle and you're shopping for something, then yeah, all this preparation is irrelevant. You can you can go out there and just goof around and have a good day because the opposite is true too, is you can ruin your day by putting too much pressure on yourself to be the project guy and or you've just rustled up some partner and you don't give a shit what they want to do and you're just like guiding the day towards your thing and all that sort of stuff. So, but the, I mean, the process is... For me, as silly as it sounds, is like I do have a piece of my brain like that I cordon off and that thing is processing the beta like almost all the damn time. <laughs> it's like you can be on that Zoom call or, you know, an interview on the struggle and really there's still, sorry, Ryan, there's still <laughs> this part of my brain that's like, okay, what if I grab that thing with my thumb up there and like, or, or remember you really got to dig the knee bar in and like it's back there processing for better or worse and with our lives 
and again, we're talking to a set of the population and maybe it's a big set of, if you have time to sit around and listen to podcasts, you're probably in, in the boat with us. You're doing some laundry or you're like, right. like whatever you're at your desk doing your TPS reports or yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's okay. Like, like again, I, people, oh, all you ever do is talk about climate. It's like, yeah, because I'm like, it's always in there grinding away. And I do think about it falling asleep. I run beta falling asleep. And, it's the uh, rock climbers yeah, counting so, I mean, sheep. It's like a dumb answer to your question that everybody knows. It's just like, yeah, you're just always stealing away moments of psyche to like process this thing and maybe to your detriment at times. But the other thing, I mean, this is the opposite, but I just like, I'm always struggling with like not beating myself up over what I should have done by now. And that's a common thing too. Like, well, I should have climbed that by now or like. I've fallen off. This literally is true is one of my projects. I've fallen off the last move three times in the last four goes. And it's like, that's not easy to just not beat yourself up. Or I've traveled a long ways a few weekends ago to get on something. And then I fell off and I just know I didn't try as hard as I, I could have. I didn't put the hammer down right when I needed to. And from the moment I was hanging on the rope, I've been beating myself up about it. And I'm trying not to, but it's like, why didn't you just hang on? Like you could have, you had reserve left. Like you just didn't throw the switch and you know, you can slow throw the switch. You've done it before. Why didn't you thing? And it's just a super fucking unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, well, there's a I balance there myself, because part of it's motivating yeah, yeah. part of it then encourages us to train a little bit harder or dig a little bit deeper. And Chris Hampton's written about this and he's got that book, The Hard Truth, about what it takes to send a limit project. And mm -hmm. all the factors have to come together. It can't just be that it's good conditions. It has to be that it's good conditions and you feel confident and you've cleared your work schedule and you can throw the switch at the right time. And there's a little bit of luck with sticking that crux move and like everything has to align and if not, then it's not a limit project. Like if it goes down without a lot of those things aligning, then it's, you know, it's not there. And you didn't like suck the marrow anyway. So it was a waste of your time. Like, you know, and, and in some ways, like if that's what you're seeking is this like is performance perfection or you're going to, you need to be driven to that to actually get the feeling that we all want. And we all elusively, I mean, the whole reason we're projecting is so we can find and walk up to the edge of performance and cross over a little bit, but not too much and send it. But that's not going to happen on a route that's well in, in your capability. And it ain't going to be the thing that you think about for the next three months after you do it or whatever. That's right. Yeah. Here, here to that. I, I often turn to my buddies when we're out and I'm just like flailing on what I would like to consider the, you know, the project and say, God, is the key to rock climber happiness just having lower expectations? Um, yeah. Sometimes, but it's, but it's hard to do that. Like, I think it'd be a, I'd be a really happy five ten climber. I think. Uh, I don't know why I'm going for five thirteen, which I've already given up on five. My goal for this fall, as we talked about on when yeah. you had me on, was five thirteen. I'm like, nah, fuck it. I'm twelve D now. It Sweet. might be twelve C in a couple of weeks. We'll see. The best routes in the world are twelve D. The best routes in the world are the cusp routes. Yeah. The D's, baby. Yeah, you like the D's. Everybody else skips the D's. Oh, the D's. Everybody else hits the C know, and goes straight D's, to the A. That's because they, yeah, that's because they're, they're they don't want to struggle. That's right. We love the struggle, right? Oh, thank you. And the D's, the D's bring that's it. My, that's my pull quote. All right, so- Everybody knows that. All right, last chapter here. Um, this has been surprisingly good, you know? 
<laughs> That's what everybody always says about my climbing. You're actually pretty good at this. Once they see me, like, you know. It's like this veiled, weird, like, half compliment. Yeah, yeah exactly. Again, the key to happiness is low expectations. Let's turn our sights away from rock climbing and talk about things that you're psyched on that bring you purpose beyond your personal rock climbing. I'm not talking about family. Obviously, family is the go-to because we have to say family. So forget about family. Of course, you love your family. Let's talk about... I mean, you can talk about your family if you want. But I'm more interested in hearing about things that 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 you the metaphorical beta is running in your head that, that isn't climbing. That could be, of course, a normal. Would love to talk about that and what the goals are. Just... That's another long lens that you have. I'm into year one of the struggle and you're into right. year 10 plus of, of a normo. But you've also just done and continue to do fantastic um, advocacy for the climbing community, either establishing first ascents and bolting and, of course, fighting the establishment. So what is it right now? <laughs> like, what are you psyched on beyond just climbing rocks? It's only climbing rocks. <laughs> Correct um, answer. Sorry. The end, end of the story, no. Um, well, I mean, one of the things that's driven me for a long time is, is music. I play guitar. I play a few instruments. And I have often backed away from calling myself a musician because I know what, it, what musicians really, how their brain works and mine doesn't work like that. I'm sort of a utilitarian approach to learning how to play an instrument, which most of us are. I think the guitar really fits into that. It was literally invented by illiterate people so they could play music. And so um, that's why it's largely popular. But but still, music is... I've played in bands over the years. I write all those, quote-unquote, write, create, build, I think is probably the best word, actually, those little ditties in the normal cast. Yeah, those are great. I futz around on a few different instruments and enjoy playing with certain friends like Lisa Hathaway and but something that, again, it's like a time problem. I was in a band when Miles was born, but the idea of like starting a band with him around seems wild and impossible or playing out in bars and things like that. So, But it, my partner, Steph, she's the one that like points it out just how much I enjoy it when I actually do it and I make the time. And particularly playing out live is a lot of fun for me. I have like rock star fantasies even today because you like if you play out at a bar or something like that you have to have those fantasies that you know even as remote as they are that this could lead to something like it's stupid and they're they're, they're not going to but you that's the way you need to present yourself as if you deserve that stage and and you're going to kick some ass and i play electric guitar mostly out live and i play in rock bands and heavy funk bands and stuff so i enjoy like back to what you were joking about with my with oh this is surprisingly good is i've been in these bands these long-term bands where climbers friends because it's two different worlds really is i had a great interview with alexis kraus from sleigh bells who's a who's an excellent climber and that was the gist of the whole thing of how like it's hard to cross those worlds over but I've had climbers show up and see our band when it was in its height. And we had a horn section and the whole thing. And it was like super heavy rock and funk, like big noise, cool. you know. And they were always, it's like super, even really good friends of mine that would never want to hurt my feelings are like, you guys were like really good with that, like <laughs> that caveat of like how fucking surprised they right, were. Right. That a little like, this guy that they <laughs> saw in the dirt at the climbing area, like. Wasn't just strumming his guitar by the by the by the 
the campfire, but like stomped on a few boxes and then ripped their face off. It's pretty fun. And so that's always been a big part of my life, even if it hasn't been in the last just like two or three years, but it'll come back. Like as a parent, you're looking at that future of your ch children being sl slightly more independent again and freeing up some time to do those kind of pursuits. And I'm currently, I would say building a better studio building, like as in I tore it apart, but I haven't actually put it back <laughs> right. together. A better studio for the podcast, because as you can see, I'm just in the basement here, but, uh, but then incorporated a studio to play music in with friends again, and then maybe Miles will get back into it. So that's a pretty big thing. I love and, that. You know, there's something similar yeah. to the flow state of music in the flow state of climbing. Like when you're, that's when flow happens in bursts mm -hmm. of three or four minutes where you lose time and you could do that. Like if you're just like riffing with your band and you just like tuck into like a really cool riff and you're improvising that's mm -hmm. that's flow state or if you're playing a gig same thing all the nerves all the performance anxiety and then all of a sudden like sure. you're feeding on the energy and it's like clicking in and you're hitting it very similar to flow state on a rock climb as well that is awesome and it's again it's elusive and everything has to come together just like you said where you're in the right mood and the band is supporting you because you need the band there and maybe they aren't always there because they're having a bad day or whatever, but you're vibing and you have the skill, you've done the practice, you, you've studied the passage and you're ready to go. And then, and, but then you let your mind go because you can't think about it. And that's like the most analogous thing is you have to stop thinking about it because if you're thinking about it, you're going to fuck totally. it up or it's going to be okay. And they're elusive moments, but they make all the loading in the gear and loading it out at 2 a.m. and whatever else that goes with being a shitty bar band that sucks uh, kind of worth it. I love that, man. So let's talk about Enormo. Anyway, what's what's the plan, man? I mean, you're like first to market. It's You're still the best and you're really good at it. Do you still enjoy it? What's the plan for the Enormo empire? Um, gosh, it's interesting you ask that and the enjoy it thing. And I mean, it's, it is something of a job now has it, it has all that. So plenty of people have a job they love where days they're not into it, or they go up and down with their passion for it. But the overall sense is that this is what I should do. And this is what I love. And, and that's kind of the normal cast. Like, again, back to time to do it. Like, I spend way too much time in the middle of the night, not sleeping, working on the enormous cast and that can add up and I, I can get down on it. But as a sort of a thing and a concept and a body of work, it's so important to me that I don't, I, I joke about like doing it forever. And then I also joke about like just stopping one day cold and letting people whine about it. But I can't really conceive of either thing. It's just such as, it's weird. It's, I've been thinking about it lately. And in a lot of ways, since I did the interview with you, like, what is it in my life? What, like, where, what, it's almost like climbing. I joke that if I stopped climbing, I would just fade away. Like, I would just get thinner, like, pixelated and distant. And the Normacast's kind of fit is my proxy for that now because I'm not as actively climbing as much and I'm not out there meeting people around the world the way, which is such a joy of climbing that we didn't even get into of like the climbing, traveling for climbing is only part climbing, you know, it's the traveling. Yeah. But I'm not doing that anymore. And this has become this proxy where I am interacting with the climbing community. I am contributing, even if I'm not putting up new routes around the world. And it's actually, I think, more influential than any climbing I ever did. 
so yeah, it's like I don't necessarily have a plan, but I also don't have a world I see without it. And and so and I my my sort of thrills with it just come and go with the interviews. And sometimes it feels like a grind and sometimes I'm just super stoked and I can't wait to put something out. And that's just natural. And I just roll with it and know that they'll come along something to get me so super stoked again. I mean, I've been listening to a normal forever as has the climbing community. I think you provide a real service. I mean, it creates community. It helps introduce us to new and interesting people and stories. And I think in a way just kind of connects us all. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're still psyched on it. Of course, any job will ebb and wane with how fun it is. But um, I think you're providing something like real and lasting. I'm grateful that you did it and, and that you're continuing to do it. Don't hang up the microphone anytime soon. Thanks, dude. Yeah, man. This was really fun. Chris, thanks Thanks again for, awesome. for joining. Again, we're bros now, you and I. <laughs> Let's do it again next week. <laughs> yeah. And that wraps up our chat with the delightful, insightful, cool, and crusty Chris Caloose. Wow, a lot of alliteration there. I love some alliteration. Cool and crusty Chris Caloose. Uh, what did y'all think of this one? Let us know. You can find Chris on IG at Anoralcast and me at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, in a second, I'm going to hit you with my takeaways. But first, a quick shout out to Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor here at The Struggle. They recently released this new greens powder, y'all, so you can level up your daily nutrition. And I am telling you, it tastes amazing. And it is packed with whole food nutrients, prebiotics, probiotics, and more. This is by far the best tasting and most affordable daily greens I have ever tried. Check it out along with everything else that they make to help athletes perform at their best. You can look for it in Europe at the Epic TV online shop and in the US at select gyms and of course at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. I just had such a blast talking with Chris here, who's been in my ears for so many years now. It honestly felt like I was just connecting with a college buddy that I hadn't seen in a while. I'm sure you all feel that way, too, if you've been listening to Chris for a decade. Uh, he just brought a ton of great stories today and history, uh, so much to this conversation. I think my favorite part was when he got real, kind of like no filter, and talked about his climbing life today and how that's changed from his earlier years, what those struggles meant to him and, and how he's working to keep the psych while also adulting, which can be really hard. So shout out to those adults out there. We don't quit, do we? No, we keep showing up and we occasionally bitch about it. It's cathartic. Well, that clips the anchors on this episode, but I have more off-season content coming your way soon and I'm working hard on season three right now. I'm telling you, it is a banger. You are not going to believe this lineup of climbers. Uh, and I'm also working really hard on the Struggle YouTube channel, which just recently launched, and it features two new episodes a week, you all, with the biggest names in climbing. I'm talking Honold and Magos, to Caldwell and Finley, to Segrist and Hill. Oh my gosh, it is so cool to see this action, to see these climbers not only talking with me on, on the show, but also to see them climbing, to see them training, to put visuals to the words that they're saying as they talk about their struggles and their breakthroughs in their climbing, training, nutrition, and tactics. Now check it all out on youtube.com slash at the struggle climbing show. And please subscribe if you like the content because that really helps to get the word out and it also keeps the lights on here in the podcast slash utility closet. 
I am so grateful for you all, patrons, listeners, and now viewers. What? Thank you so much for your support. Hey, did you know the struggle's carbon neutral in partnership with Honold Foundation? They are doing amazing work, y'all, to bring clean energy to communities around the world, including power for 15 rural Ugandan hospitals that otherwise lack electricity. How amazing is that? Swing on over to honoldfoundation.org to check out this incredible work that they're doing to take action and to support, if you can, with a tax-deductible donation. They're doing such great stuff. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. The Struggle makes us stronger. Let's climb hard and do good things in the world. See y'all.